0: Podcast One Production. Last year, I needed some serious focus time to write the first five episodes of Series One of Cryptonomics. So I got on a flight to Tokyo and I checked myself into a hotel and I sat down to write. Ten days and 20,000 words later, I'd finished the core of Series One. I laid out all the basics of blockchains and cryptocurrencies and tokens and smart contracts. Everything people might need to know so they wouldn't gamble away all their money. Because, well, back then, that was the crypto winter. Bitcoin had already collapsed from its high of nearly 25,000 Australian dollars down to just a few thousand. A lot of people had lost a lot of money because they'd ignored the Buffett rule. That's named after the wizard of Omaha, Warren Buffett. If you don't understand it, don't invest in it. Now, hardly anyone understands Bitcoin. It's a weird new form of money. It's the first of the cryptocurrencies. And like all money before it, cryptocurrencies possess three fundamental characteristics. They can't be counterfeited. They can be counted. And you can prove that you hold them. That's enough. That's all you need. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin has those qualities, as does Ethereum and Litecoin and NEO and EOS and Ripple and Stellar and a few thousand other brand new currencies. Okay, so we can make money, or at least we can make things that have the same attributes as money. But that doesn't mean they're worth anything. Bitcoin started out as an attempt to solve the payments problem on the internet. And that's a topic we'll come back to later in this episode. It turns out Bitcoin wasn't really a good fit for that. Visa and MasterCard process hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. Bitcoin, Bitcoin can do just a handful. And they'll take as long as 20 minutes to confirm. So... Maybe we couldn't build a payment system out of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin was still quite rare. It was being paid to the folks who devoted computer time to keep the Bitcoin books balanced, the miners who burned through enough electricity to power Switzerland, all to get a share of increasingly rare handouts of Bitcoins. So Bitcoin became a commodity. And that's when its price soared from dollars tens of thousands of dollars, and after a bit of a break, it's back up again at around 15000 Australian dollars. People are getting excited again. But things have changed. Things have changed a lot. And that change, it's only just getting started. I know this because I've just come back from Japan. I went there again exactly one year later, and this time I hadn't intended to write another series of cryptonomics. But... And here's the unexpected thing. When I was in Japan this year, Series 2 of Cryptonomics, it, it sort of wrote itself. Because a new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains largely the same, but the world, the world has moved along. Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 1 of Series 2 of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Now, along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. Now, in Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? You learned the questions you'll need to ask and the sorts of answers that you want to receive. cryptocurrencies are only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, Everything will be changed by this new technology, and that's why we called this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall, and the rise again in Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change rolling over banks, retailers, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype Is justified. It's a new way of doing business and it's already forcing businesses as old and established as banking to make way for it. Coming up, we'll take a look at the biggest event in cryptocurrency ever. Back at the end of October in 2008, a paper published on the internet detailed a new system for peer to peer payments one that didn't need banks or credit cards or any trusted intermediaries at all. It defined a new form of trustless relationships, only they weren't really trustless. Instead, what they did was they made everything transparent so you could see for yourself, you could inspect for yourself, you could make the decision to trust for yourself. You never needed to take anyone else's word for it. Now, that new trustless relationship, it took the form of a public ledger, Think of it as a sort of spreadsheet that's open to anyone to read. You can check to see how much money someone has in their account by checking this spreadsheet. They can check to see how much money is in yours. And that made it possible to transact with someone you'd never met. Someone you'd never meet. But with the assurance that you'd be paid. And that was a genuinely new thing. Now that paper... It's called a white paper in technical terms, which is just a fancy way of saying a paper. But that white paper was the genesis of Bitcoin. And ever since then, every advance in cryptocurrencies has been announced by another white paper. There's one for Ethereum, which opened the door to the first smart contracts. That's programmable money. And that's a very big deal. And there have been others. There have been many, many others At the peak of the ICOs, those initial coin offerings, every ICO had an accompanying white paper to explain its tokenomics, explaining how the coin would be used and why it might have any value in the future. And most of those ICOs, they are worthless now. Their white papers evaporated into so much hot air. They promised the world they delivered nothing more than a few of those ICOs were outright scams. You float a coin, you make a matzah, and then you disappear with all the funds. And plenty that weren't scams... They were just bad ideas for businesses. I mean, we've seen this before. Back in the earliest days of the web, Web 1.0, we saw lots of companies hoovering up venture capital, rushing toward a public offering on the markets, and they didn't have any profits or any path to profits. And that all ended very badly back in April of 2000. It took down the share market. nearly took the web down with it. The web went into a period of commercial hibernation for half a decade. No one was investing. Everyone was licking their wounds. Two things came along to change that. And the first of those was a new payments platform. You've heard of it, PayPal. PayPal came along at just the right time to solve a big problem. How do you pay someone in the UK for something you're buying from Australia? And before the internet, That didn't really happen a whole lot. It was too hard to buy from overseas, and if you ever needed to, then you'd go down to the bank and get a bank check for the amount required and the currency requested. It's a lot of work. That was not going to work for a site like eBay, which had tens of millions of buyers from all over the world trying to purchase from hundreds of thousands of sellers, again, all over the world. That's a lot of trade and a lot of currencies, And PayPal came along at just the right time to make that big problem disappear. Get a PayPal account, send money to anyone or receive money from anyone with nothing more than your email address. Too easy. And so PayPal became huge almost overnight. It launched the careers of several Silicon Valley legends, including Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. Now, everyone knows Elon Musk. He went on to found Tesla and SpaceX. Not quite everyone knows about Peter Thiel, but Peter Thiel was in the right place at the right time to make the first investment in that other company in the second wave after the web imploded. It was a little company, quite obscure. You won't have heard of it. At the time, it was known as The Facebook, run by a precocious Harvard dropout named Mark Zuckerberg. The Facebook dropped the definite article, And Facebook went on to become the fifth largest company on earth, worth close to a trillion Australian dollars. And in an unexpected twist, one that must have amused Peter Thiel, in 2019, Facebook circled back on the same problem that PayPal had solved two decades earlier, moving money. And we learned this on the 18th of June 2019, when Facebook... Dropped its own
1: white paper. The advent of the internet and mobile broadband has empowered billions of people globally to have access to the world's knowledge and information, high fidelity communications, and a wide range of lower cost, more convenient services. These services are now accessible using a $40 smartphone from almost anywhere in the world. This connectivity has driven economic empowerment by enabling more people to access the financial ecosystem. Working together, technology companies and financial institutions have also found solutions to help increase economic empowerment around the world. Despite this progress, large swathes of the world's population are still left behind. 1.7 billion adults globally remain outside the financial system with no access to a traditional bank, even though 1 billion have a mobile phone and nearly half a billion have internet access.
0: What would it be like to have no access access to the banking system. It's something we never really think about here in Australia. We all get bank accounts when we're small, and for years Commonwealth Bank have had their dollar mites program going on in schools, teaching kids how to save. It's ingrained in our culture. It's very nearly written into the fabric of Australia's economy. We have four big banks. They're here to provide services to all Australians, and by and large, that's true. There are exceptions if you live very, very far away or if you're very, very poor, you might not have access to the banking system. You'd be in the same boat as someone in Africa or South Asia, places where the banking system only serves the needs of the small middle class and the even smaller upper classes. In the developing world, the business in banking is in meeting the needs of big business. Now, a lot of that had to do with physical infrastructure. In somewhere like Kenya, There just aren't a lot of bank branches. There'll be a lot in Nairobi, that's the capital, but none in Kenya's thousands of villages. You'd have to travel a fair distance to get to a bank branch. All of that changed in 2007 with the launch of a service known as M-Pesa. That's M-P-E-S-A. M-Pesa was an experiment. It was dreamed up in Vodafone's labs in London. It was trialed through their Kenyan subsidiary, Safaricom, and with the permission of and under the supervision of the Central Bank of Kenya. Now, what M-Pesa did was, was really nothing short of magical, because although there were only a very few bank branches in Kenya back in 2007, There were a lot of vendors on the street selling mobile minutes. In the developing world, pay-as-you-go services are the norm. You buy the minutes you need with the cash you have on hand. And well over half of Kenyans owned a mobile in 2007, so there was a big market for mobile minutes and thousands of vendors everywhere. M-Pesa turned every one of those vendors into a bank branch. Any Kenyan could open an M-Pesa account. It's a real bank account managed by Safaricom and tied to their mobile number. And once it was opened, a Kenyan could go to any vendor of Mobile Minutes, hand them cash, and then the vendor would deposit that cash into their M-Pesa account. It was just like going to see a teller at a bank branch. And once it was in their M-Pesa account, they could transfer cash from that account to anyone else with an M-Pesa account just by sending them a text message. M-Pesa was designed from the start to be easy to use, and because it was operated by text messages, it would work on basically any mobile. So suddenly, Kenyans who were working in the capital didn't have to spend an entire day on a bus back to their village to hand a wad of cash to their family and then spend another day on the bus to get back to the capital. Instead, they could simply send a text message that deposited the cash into the family's M-Pesa account. And in that village, there'd be another mobile minutes vendor, and they could visit that vendor and make a withdrawal from their M-Pesa account. It was like having a bank branch in the village. It was suddenly like getting thousands of bank branches. And overnight, the Kenyan economy went from having a few banks and only a few more bank branches to more branches than you could count. Within a few years, 60% of the entire value of the Kenyan economy was passing through M-Pesa. Most of it in small amounts. As people paid one another for things, or city workers passed remittances along to family members out in the villages. It all worked brilliantly in Kenya. And people thought, well, if it works in Kenya, let's give it a try elsewhere. And it didn't work quite as well. Now, back in early 2015, I visited Rwanda. Rwanda is an East African nation. It sits across from Kenya on the opposite shore of Lake Victoria. So mobile money systems like M-Pesa, they got to Rwanda very quickly. But unlike Kenya, where there's only one big mobile carrier, Safaricom, Rwanda has three mobile carriers. Each of them share about a third of the population as subscribers. And each of those carriers started their own mobile money service. Now, that sounds great. Until you realize that each carrier wanted to keep all the mobile money within their system. You could transfer money to another mobile subscriber on the same carrier, but not to a subscriber on another carrier. And that left Rwandans on three separate, disconnected islands of money. And unable to move the money between them unless... Okay, let's step back. Let me tell you a little story. At the end of my trip to Rwanda, I traveled with a few friends to go see the famed mountain gorillas. And on our way there, we asked our guides to take us to a local market. This is the place where the Rwandans are buying produce and basics like mops and brooms. At the entrance to the market, we found a small stand just like what you see anywhere in Rwanda. At this stand, you could buy mobile minutes, you could charge your phone while you're in the market, and you could deposit or withdraw mobile money. So that stand functioned just like an ATM. People coming into the market would withdraw some money from their mobile money savings account, and they'd use that cash for shopping. And they could do that no matter which mobile money carrier they used. The vendor accepted all three. They'd go into the market, they'd spend their money. I guess they could deposit any leftovers back into their mobile money account as they left the market. That's a lot more work than what you'd need to do if everyone could move mobile money without worrying about the carrier. Because in that case, you'd just be able to breeze into the market with your mobile, and you'd be able to pay anyone in the market with a mobile money transfer direct from your account to their account. No cash needed. They could do that in Kenya, but they couldn't do that in Rwanda. Now, at the time we heard they were moving toward linking these three systems together, But in 2015, that seemed very far away. There wasn't a lot of profit in it for the mobile money providers. So it wasn't happening quickly. Even though this would have really improved the mobile money services offered to Rwandans. Now, there's a rule for systems like this. It's known as Metcalfe's law. The value of a network is the square of the number of the users of the network. So more users means more value, and not just a bit more value, lots and lots more value. Best example of that is Facebook, with more than 2 billion people using it for at least a few hours a month every single month. That's a lot of network and a lot of value. Facebook operates in over 100 countries, rich countries and poor countries, countries that have sophisticated financial systems and products, and countries that don't. Consider credit cards. We don't think about them because we all have them here in Australia, in America, in Europe. But there are plenty of places where people don't have credit cards. Because credit cards mean banks and bank accounts and bank branches and a banking system that's geared up to working with people who might only earn $10 a day. And when we're buying things online, we use credit cards or possibly we'll use PayPal, but PayPal ends up being tied to a credit card or a bank account. And this is the problem that Facebook is
1: tackling head on. All over the world, people with less money pay more for financial services. When people are asked why they remain on the fringe of the existing financial system, those who remain unbanked point to not having sufficient funds, high and unpredictable fees, banks being too far away and lacking the necessary documentation.
0: The world's financial system is great if you have money. But if you don't have money, how do you open a door into a financial system that can help you earn it? That access, that's the goal of Facebook's new cryptocurrency, Libra. Now, we shouldn't take any claim from Facebook at face value. We need to be very cautious. We need to be very inquisitive because this gift horse definitely needs a good look in the mouth. Facebook has done all the work to create a Libra cryptocurrency and they started an association to manage the currency. Now, more about that association in another episode. Right now, let's just take a look at the basics of Libra. And to do that, it's my pleasure to welcome to Cryptonomics one of Australia's brightest crypto minds, Samuel Brooks. Sam is the CTO of Block 8, a cryptocurrency venture studio. Now that's a new thing, where he's designed tokens, smart contracts, and stable coins for his clients. Sam, welcome to Cryptonomics. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right. So is Libra a true cryptocurrency? Is it like Bitcoin? Is it not like Bitcoin? I was sort of where does it sit on this scale of what a cryptocurrency is? So that's a really big question, I think.
2: And my also I've got two answers for this. I guess one is uh a short answer. No. It's it's <laughs> okay. not really a cryptocurrency. So it's no but. It's no but. Um, and the but is you know, you 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 have to dive into, you know, where blockchains come from, I think, in order to really, really understand this. And I gave a brief talk on on this topic last year at the Spark Festival here in Sydney on coins, tokens and stable coins and such things. And I think it's always important to try and agree on terminology. You know, there's this is these are underdefined terms that we're dealing with. Um and there's lots of them. And you sort of get these bubbles of jargon that, that pop up in various places along the DLT landscape. So um, I, I think it's also important to try and understand money just a little bit. And uh, that's actually a pretty hard thing to truly understand uh, because it's, it's, it's a combination of several phenomena and technologies, including like human psychology, things like shared belief network effects, and macroeconomics and, and governance. Understanding money, I think, also means understanding value. So, you know, there are there are a lot of, still a lot of people out there, including my dad, actually, who still don't realise that fiat money is not actually backed by gold anymore.
0: So fiat money being, you know, dollars or, right. or yen or whatever.
2: Fiat coming from the French word fact, which means that it is a fact that this thing is issued um, by the government. It's this, you know... It's the stuff you have in your electronic bank accounts, the stuff you have in your wallet. Um, we actually dropped the gold standard a long time ago. But in in essence, fiat is backed by a network effect.
0: Right, it's backed by the fact that the reserve bank says you should believe that these dollars are good dollars and we have an economy to prove it. Exactly. All right, so what's Libra backed with then in that circumstance? And when we hear about this quote-unquote stable coin and this basket of currencies. What does that actually mean in this context? If you're referring an Australian dollar back to the Reserve Bank or you're referring an American dollar back to the US Federal Reserve, what are we referring a Libra back to? Libra
2: is backed by, uh, or at least they say it will be backed by, a basket of international currencies, including the US dollar and uh, government-issued securities. So relatively stable external assets uh, and diversified in such a way that uh, it 's stable on a
0: on a global level in a bit of a shell game here, if we say that those state currencies are backed by belief right it 's the Tinkerbell effect you' really kind of and, 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 and everyone I think is okay with that at some level until you print a lot of your currency and then you end up like Venezuela or Zimbabwe and yeah. when I was at the g20, someone gave me a ten billion dollars Zimbabwe note which I now treasure and I will take a picture of it and we'll put it up on the website to show you exactly what happens to a currency when people forget to believe in it. So you have this new currency that Facebook wants everyone to believe in, and, and the way that they're getting them to believe it is by using all of these other currencies and other financial instruments, such as bonds, that people believe in the value of. And they're saying, okay, because you believe in the value of that, then you can believe in the value of Libra? Yes, essentially. You designed a stable coin last year, and I remember because we had a long conversation about this. Yeah. And it's actually kind of hard to design a stablecoin, right? Because you kind of have to sort of understand that it has to be stable when everything else in the world is in motion around it. So how do you do that?
2: Well, there's, uh, uh, this comes back to terminology, right? And so uh, there's there's really two kinds of, of stablecoins. And it gets back to the question about whether or not Libra is a cryptocurrency because you have effectively trusted stablecoins coins in which you need to trust some party that, uh, or, or some, some entity, some, some issuer, that there is something of external value backing the token in which you're transacting against. So the Tether the
0: being a good example of that, where they were tether. supposedly going to bank a single US dollar for every Tether they issued, although there has been a lot of question around that right. more recently.
2: Right. right. Tether is a good example, you know, and you've got some others, True USD, the Gemini dollar usually being backed by, by the US dollar. And then you have trustless cryptocurrencies or trustless stablecoins in which they're completely endemic to the, to the, to the blockchain, to the program that's, that's being run to secure these transactions and ensure that there's no double spending effectively.
0: And this is what you did, because you did a stablecoin that was, I believe, on the Ethereum blockchain, right? right? And so it actually represented a value in Ethereum, so in other words, it was backed by Ethereum, right? Uh,
2: not not exactly. So,
0: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so
2: as I said, there's there's two types of, of stablecoin: trusted and untrusted. And the untrusted ones, because they operate entirely within a blockchain system and they don't reference any external information or external any external assets, uh, they have to be algorithmic. So they need to effectively be self-balancing mm. and and uh, affect that stable price over time with respect to an external asset.
0: So if the price of Ethereum goes way up, then you adjust the stable coin to be less of it, or if the price of Ethereum goes way down, which it did, yeah. then you have to adjust it again?
2: It's actually stable with respect to uh, an external asset. So the US dollar, and since then the team has, has released other ones, so stable with respect to yen, uh, Australian dollars, Canadian dollars, and so forth. But effectively a you 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 need some sort of market mechanism to have a trustless stablecoin. So so we effectively did this by having a two-token system. We had one token which was in f- fixed supply but of variable value, and a token which is which was issued from that fixed supply token which was of variable
0: supply, but of fixed value. So you'd you'd put more in circulation if all of a sudden the 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 pool of value was worth more, and you'd take them from circulation if that pool of value was worth less. So you'd basically, I it's I, I almost think of it like keeping a balloon at the same level of inflation while the air pressure outside is changing.
2: <laughs> I don't know if the team would agree with the word inflation, but uh, um, <laughs>
0: sorry, not not in the economic sense of the word, but yes. <laughs>
2: So, yeah, we effectively created a, uh, a stability market. Yeah. So, we're, uh, a market between the users of stability, which used the stablecoin, and there was a fee which fed back to the providers of that stability, which by holding the, the fixed supply token enabled them to create and destroy the supply of the stablecoin in order to maintain its, its fixed value. Okay,
0: so this is all. I, I won't call it sophisticated, but it, it, it's it, it does. It's a little unusual, and it seems that if Libra is of a stable coin of the second kind, where it's referring back to external currencies, right. then it's not going to have to go through these machinations as long as the currencies it's referring to maintain their value relatively consistent
2: agreed agreed so everyone effectively trusts that
0: there is some value backing that that token or that coin so but here here's my wonder because in some sense this is similar to you know if you're in the basket of currencies it's kind of like being on say the dow jones list right you know or companies get a premium because they're included in that list of companies. Yeah. Yep. Is there a chance that if you're in this basket that your currency is worth more because it's in this basket and if there's a threat of you being removed from that basket because your currency is unstable or because Facebook doesn't like you, that that could have an effect on the currency itself and not just on Libra? In other words, is that then a kind of almost a cudgel that that Libra could use?
2: It's a possibility. uh, uh in all cases, the reserve needs to be very well managed, and the selection of the most stable assets should be, um, you know, should be selected to, to be kept in the basket. Um, and actually, I guess, and
0: it's a question of who chooses and who decides, right?
2: Yeah, and just making sure that they do it well. Um, that, you know, some people have said that in the future, if Libra were to hang around, they may actually include something like. Cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in in the reserve. Mm. I actually think the reserve the the reverse is true as well, where uh, Libra may actually command a premium because of its technological superiority over the backing currency, which is an interesting thing to consider.
0: Well, I mean, given that it's a truly digital and that it's here to basically fill a hole that hasn't mm. been filled by central banks, yeah. which have been resistant to producing truly digital currencies, mm. right? There clearly is going to be a benefit for people to hold and to use it to trade with, right? Because it just makes certain things that are really hard right now absolutely really easy. It's a it's an obvious uh, use case when you
2: think about things like remittance, the, the possibility to onboard many who are underbanked and don't have basic financial services with with something as accessible
0: as Facebook is is quite compelling. All right now, you're also an expert in smart contracts. Libra has a smart contract baked into it. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, well, and this is, you know, completely obvious and uh, expected, I suppose, from from Facebook. And and indeed, this is potentially speaks to the greatest strategy that that Facebook and Libra are are looking into, because if you can build a blockchain to move. Um, account balances around like Bitcoin as we've seen history has told us that you can then just build one to do general computation and share not just account balances but uh, just stateful information across across the blockchain so you know as soon as Libra was announced I expected them to also have a smart contracting language and in fact it was there uh, so uh, yeah it's 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 a it it obviously borrows from all of the concepts that have come before in terms of blockchain 1.0 being Bitcoin, blockchain 2.0 being Ethereum 1.0 uh, and now has sought to take the best elements of those things, combine it with a bit of centralization and a bit of the efficiency associated with the centralised governance and then combined also with Facebook's enormous user base and you have something that's potentially very, very powerful.
0: And I guess one of the things that people don't necessarily know about Bitcoin is it takes sort of 20-ish minutes for a Bitcoin transaction to settle, if I'm giving you that, because it just takes that long for the ledgers to sort of get sorted out. And Libra is going to settle much more quickly than that, correct? Correct,
2: yeah. uh, So again, you know, there's always a trade-off between decentralization and performance, Mm. and Libra have tried to strike a balance between those two things you know it's not as decentralized as something like ethereum or or bitcoin where let's say that's a 7 or 8 out of 10 on the decentralized scale and as we know it's quite it's quite poor in terms of performance i think it's sort of you know it strikes maybe a 2 or a 3 in terms of decentralization so it it's it wants to provide first and foremost performant financial services right. and uh, over time as the technology matures Try and increase the decentralization without sacrificing performance. So the uh, one way they do that is to select a certain, um, let's say, semi-trusted consensus mechanism. I think theirs is called Hot Stuff, uh, which is an interesting name for a for a mathematical algorithm. Where you have uh, so, so that's a leader-based algorithm. You have a leader which is uh, coordinating consensus, and you have uh, what's what's known as instant finality. So with with Bitcoin and with Ethereum, with proof of work, you have to wait a certain number of blocks in order to be sh- relatively sure, probabilistically speaking, that your transaction is not going to be reverted. But with a consensus algorithm like Hot Stuff and some others that uh, have been invented more recently, you have instant finality. So once the block is included, it, it, your transaction is not going anywhere.
0: Okay, so one of the things that's starting to become clear when you talk about 1.0 as Bitcoin, 2.0 as Ethereum, arguably 3.0 as as Libra, is that there's a real learning process that's going on that as we're working with cryptocurrencies more, we're getting a better sense of actually how to make them work well in different situations. It's hard to think Mm -hmm. that Libra is the end of this. If we go forward, and and the one thing that we've seen quite clearly is that every central banker has now got this weird fear in their eyes because they never thought they were going to be digitally disrupted, and certainly not by a technology company, and it's now just happened to them. Are we going to see central banks now starting to become very conversant in these technologies so that they can go to a 4.0 or a 5.0 for their own currencies? Is that a natural thing for us to expect? It's a good question. So, And some of my colleagues
2: in the blockchain space in Australia have been attempting to have the conversation with the RBA about about this very topic.
0: And the RBA, you not having any.
2: Uh, yeah, it's, you know, they're, they're large bureaucratic organisations and change is hard, almost by definition, right? Some have called, you know, the government as, uh, you know, a well-armed insurance company. And in a lot of ways that makes a lot of sense and uh, yeah, so um, if you have a look at the evolution of blockchain technology where we're attempting to solve for certain features, Bitcoin solved for the double spend problem. It fundamentally enabled us to perform these sorts of transactions without any intermediaries. Ethereum came along and added general computation. And now the next wave of blockchains are doing so with a high degree of performance.
0: So that they can scale to what Facebook Global is basically scale. saying billions of users.
2: Yeah. So that, all those elements together mean you've you've solved most of the problems. The next key problem on the blockchain, in, in terms of blockchain future, would probably be privacy, integrated privacy solutions. But most people in the space, I think, believe that if you solve for the scalability problem, with general computation, then you can layer over-the-top privacy solutions as, as required.
0: So, Which we're going to need because all of a sudden we're going to have a big global ledger of everyone's transaction activity everywhere because of Libra.
2: I don't think that's going to be managed with integrated privacy technology such as zero-knowledge proofs or anything like this. I believe, at least what I can fathom from the various documentations, is that it's, it's simply going to be um, operational controls over that information. So what can who uh,
0: see, who, who can see what effectively. We're going to rely on basically Facebook saying that they're not going to peek under the wiring. All right, Sam, yeah. you have really illuminated this topic for us. Thank you for joining us on Cryptonomics. Thank you for having me. Probably the most interesting thing about Libra now and for some time to come is just how provocative it's proven to be. Everyone has an opinion on it, including the President of the United States.
3: I'm not a fan of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies which are not money and whose value is highly volatile and based on thin air. Unregulated crypto assets can facilitate unlawful behavior, including drug trade and other illegal activity. Similarly, Facebook Libra's virtual currency will have little standing or dependability. If Facebook and other companies want to become a bank, they must seek a new banking charter and become subject to our banking regulations, just like other banks, both national and international. We only have one real currency in the USA, and it is stronger than ever, both dependable and reliable. It is by far the most dominant currency anywhere in the world, and it will always stay that way. It is called the United States dollar.
0: Now, it's the president's job to defend the currency against competitors. But how could a cryptocurrency? And it's one that still doesn't exist. Really not even much more than a white paper. How could it inspire such a reaction? And not just from the president of the United States, but from someone who, at least in economic circles, is more powerful. Here's Jerome Powell, chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, the most powerful banker in the world. Libra raises many serious concerns uh, regarding privacy, money laundering, consumer protection and financial stability. Uh, These are concerns that should be thoroughly and publicly addressed before proceeding. And that's why at the Fed we've set up a working group uh, to focus on on this set of issues. We are coordinating with our our colleagues in the government in the United
2: States, the, the regulatory agencies and Treasury. We're coordinating with central banks and governments around the
0: world to to look into this. Um, And I'll just add that the process of addressing these concerns, we think, should be a patient and careful one and not a sprint to implementation. Central bankers treasure safety. They want things to be the same tomorrow as they were today. Now, I got the opportunity... When I was in Rwanda, to ask the head of Kenya's central bank whether he'd expected M-Pesa to be so successful. Of course not, he replied. We'd never have let it happen. And even though M-Pesa turned out to be a very good thing for Kenya, it was also a very big thing for Kenya. And central bankers do not like unintended consequences. No one knows what a global cryptocurrency like Libra, backed by one of the biggest companies in the world, Facebook, no one knows what that will mean, and people are scared. The president, the chair of the Federal Reserve, and lots more besides. They don't know what they're scared of yet. So, in their fear, they all point to one thing, money laundering. Because that's something that's both a big danger and something that we have laws to prevent. And that's being used as a counter to the growing pressure to bring Libra to life. Facebook has figured out that getting digital money onto the 4 billion smartphones out there will be a very good thing for Facebook. But will it be good for anyone else? And more to the point, will it be good for criminals and terrorists? That's an open question for Libra and every other cryptocurrency. And that's the topic for the next episode of Cryptonomics. Big thanks to Samuel Brooks for coming on our show. If you want to learn more about Libra, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, search The Next Billion Seconds, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.